0: Thanks for tuning in to listen to a sermon from Red Hill Church. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. You can find out more about Red Hill by visiting us online at www.redhill.church or by searching Red Hill Church on Facebook or Instagram. We hope that today's sermon is encouraging to you as you try to follow Jesus in everyday life. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Today we'll be in Romans chapter 12, uh, starting with verse nine and reading through the remainder of the chapter. And as you're turning, I've noticed that uh, several weeks, the readers have said, hi, my name is, and I haven't done that, so I'm I'm just happy to say, for those of you who don't know me, hi, I'm Josh's dad. (laughs) Romans chapter 12, verse nine. Let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lack diligence and zeal, be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer, share with the saints in their needs, pursue hospitality, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as the far as it depends upon you live at peace with everyone friends do not avenge yourselves instead leave room for god's wrath because it is written vengeance belongs to me i will repay says the lord but if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink for in doing so you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. God's word for God's people.
0: Thanks so much, Josh's dad. I probably would have gone with Wilson and Elliot's grandpa, but you know, you do you, brother. You do you. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm excited to share this message with you this morning. We're, we're continuing a series through our values. Normally we preach through books of the Bible. Every now and then we break out and we do something different. Every time we break out and do something different, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And I think it makes a little bit, uh, some of you a little bit uncomfortable because we go, we've chosen a topic rather than just going straight to a text and letting that text speak for itself. And I wanna sort of give you an understanding as to why we do that in uh, following Jesus, there are imperatives and there are indicatives. And all the grammar nerds in the room said, amen. Okay, there's a few of you. That was, there, was a, there was a comma there waiting for the response in quotes of amen. And a few of you gave it to me. I appreciate it, nerds. Um, the imperatives are things like you must be born again. Anyone who would approach God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You, like, you must repent of your sins. There are imperatives that the gospel gives to us, things that we must do. But there are also indicatives that are born out of those imperatives. In other words, there are things that we must do because we believe. And there's sort of like this pendulum that has swung. For a, a, a long time, as I was growing up in the church in the 90s particularly, and even into the early 2000s, The pendulum of the church swung all the way towards indicatives where every church was doing topical series all the time. 10 steps to be a better dad, 15 ways that you can be a good employee, seven ways to have a great marriage, and everything was related just to being helpful as you live out your everyday life. And then the pendulum swung the other way so far that people would say, the only thing you need to do is preach the gospel. That's all you do is just preach the gospel. I was talking to a friend, just last week, a week and a half ago, maybe. And he was like, I'm thinking about going as a pastor of this particular church. And I was like, oh yeah. I said, I'm familiar with that church. I said, it's it's very historic, you know, almost like prehistoric in certain ways. It's like very, very uh, established, like to the point of being almost sedentary. In fact, like locked in place as if entombed just laying there dead, lifeless, not moving, not wanting to change or grow in any way, shape, or form. He's like, yeah, I know. I know all about that. And I was like, well, have you thought about like how do you help that church grow out of the place that it is? How do you help them move again? He's like, the only thing that a church that is dead needs is just for someone to come in and preach the gospel, which is partly true, but it's not always completely helpful. If that was all that there was, the Bible would be significantly shorter. Jesus' whole point would have just been this, repent of your sins and believe that I am the one who can save you from them, period. That's the whole, that's all four of the gospels, and that's all that Paul would have just wrote one letter. I mean, it's probably like, maybe like 25 letters, I guess, like individual letters in one sentence Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and we don't need to say anything else. And yet, Jesus says a whole lot more than that himself. The Bible says a whole lot more than that itself because we are not isolated cases in need of salvation. We are living witnesses, ambassadors, as it were, people through whom God is making his very appeal, which means the way that you and I live matters. The Bible has a lot to say about how we are to live. There is an incredible difference between morality and moralism. Morality says, it is good for you to be good, which feels like a strange thing to need to say in church. And yet here we are, it is good for you to be good. The world is better when you are good. And in fact, the world is better when people who don't know Jesus are good. It's a better place when we are moral people. Moralism says, my goodness is what makes me good. My goodness is what makes me pleasing in the eyes of God. So we want to have morality, but we don't want to practice moralism. And it is a difference with a huge, a distinction, excuse me, with a huge difference. In other words, we could say imperatives like this. Because I believe, fill in the blank, I will fill in the blank. Because I believe, I will. And what we're talking about is sanctification. That's what we're really talking about. As we talk about our values, what we're talking about is that our lives, and when I say our lives, I mean our church together should be living in a good way. We should be doing things that are good as a shining example to our community that not only does Jesus save you from your sins, but he gives you a new life, a new family, and a new way of living and experiencing both life and family. That he changes you. He's conforming you into the image of his son. You are saved. If you are a Christian, you are saved, but you are being sanctified. You are being changed. So as we talk through one of the indicatives, something that indicates that we have been saved by Jesus, let's remember that it is imperative that we live it out. It's imperative that we are friends. It feels like a weird thing to say, and it feels even weirder to me because in my spirit right now, I'm like, some of these people are like, I'm never gonna be friends with that person. And I only know that because I've said things like that. And I think in my own life, that's the single brightest shining example of the difference between me and Jesus. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the suffering, despised the shame, and willingly submitted himself to death on a cross And as he's ascending towards the cross, after discipling his disciples for almost three years, he tells them, no longer do I call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his, you know, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you my friends, my friends. C.S. Lewis says, friendship is unnecessary, like philosophy, like art. It has no survival value, rather, It is one of those things that give value to survival. In my own life, like if you were to do like Maslow's hierarchy of needs or what's really most important to me, I don't know if I have a value personally higher than friendship. I really like personality inventories I think they're fun to take, and every time I take one, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is uh, either, like, this is 100% me, or this is this is close, but I'm actually different in these ways, but I like those things. I like to give them to my friends, because I'm like, here's, you know, my friends, the elders, I, I've sent them so many of my personality inventories, they're like, dude, we know you, and we get it, stop emailing us this stuff. We, are, we understand how... Special you are, right? You're the shiny penny, okay, Raiden? You're the shiny penny, right? But I keep sending them and I keep looking at them and I keep like pouring over them because I want to understand how God has made me. And in every one that I've ever taken that measures your orientation towards relationships or tasks, like people are generally oriented naturally towards one or the other, um, I am 100% oriented on relationships. In other words, if you tell me, I really need you to do the following, You might as well be talking to some inanimate object like a chair or a wall or a table. Like a table, I really need you to go to the grocery store and pick up this item. My wife will tell me, go get this one thing from the grocery store. And I go to the grocery store and I come back with five grocery items and a kitchen appliance. And not the thing that she asked me to get. You know what I'm saying? Like Not that. But I go to the grocery store and I'm like, what would Sarah really like? Based on what I know of my wife, what would she want most? I think these things would be wonderful. I come home and she's like, did you get the flower? I'm like, yes, in the future. And I go back out and I have a a list and it says flower. But if I don't make the list, I'm not going to get it. And if there's something that needs to be done, here's how I make myself do it. Is I go, if I don't get this thing, I'm going to be in trouble in this relationship. Or I say... I really want to honor this other person. And so I'm going to do this thing. I I can't, the the idea of a to-do list for the sake of checking things off the to-do list, I admire those of you with those gifts. I need those people in my life. It's one of the biggest reasons why I don't lead our staff meetings because we would hang out and talk and get to know each other and nothing would ever get done. So we have Carrie who's good at getting things done, helping us stay on task. I have this tremendously high value of friendship, if I could choose uh, what would be on my gravestone based on the life that I lived, I would choose he was a good friend. And I know simultaneously, even as I say that, like these images of faces come into my mind um, of people that I've disappointed in friendship. People that I just, I let them down and I was not a good friend to them. Like that the friendship, it doesn't even exist anymore. It's uh, hard to be a friend. It's harder still to stay friends and to endure through friendship. The world has almost completely lost its capacity for friendship, for experiencing real and lasting friendship. The world knows nothing of two men looking at each other in the eyes and saying, I love you, and then embracing one another. The world knows nothing of unrelated men and women who can embrace each other and say, I love you, and that none of that is sexualized. And none of that is for the purpose of utility. Social media and the uh, hyper-sexualization of our culture have stripped away the Imago Dei. They've stripped away the image of God inside of us that exists in us and the empathy that we're all supposed to share and feel for one another. Why do you think Jesus said the single best apologetic for being his follower was that you would love other Christians? I mean, why do you think that is? I I, I read that, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's really good. And then I ask this, like, that's John 13, 35, for those of you who need the address. Why didn't he say, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, by the love you have for me? Doesn't that make more sense? Wouldn't it make more sense if he's like, here's how the world will know that you're my disciples, by the way that you love me? That's not what he said. He said, here's how the world will know that you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another, Wouldn't it have made more sense to say, this is how the world will know you're my disciples by the love you have for me? The short answer is no. It would not have made more sense. The long answer is, you're not smarter than God and neither am I. Even though sometimes I think I am. Even though in this instance I'm like, it would make more sense to me. I mean, I'm sitting and I'm like, I'm racking my brain. Why doesn't it go like that? And as I reflected on it, here's what I I came up with. I am capable of passing off all kinds of rudeness, malice, and pride as love for God. I'm quite good at it. I see it all the time from pastors and I see it all the time from myself. We're cruel. Sometimes we're just mean. And we say, that's because I love God so much. Truth-telling is not love. And by the way, Despite what the culture says, love is not love. That's not what God's word has to say. God's word says this, God is love. (sighs) Saying love is love is like saying table is table. It makes sense in a preschool dictionary kind of a way. Table is table, that makes sense, but it doesn't inform me at all as to what a table actually is. It doesn't tell me what a table is supposed to do. It doesn't tell me how a table serves me and how I am supposed to serve a table. It doesn't tell me the utility of a table in my life. It tells me nothing actually about the properties of a table. And if I were to say something like Smurf is Smurf, without context, you have no idea what that means. And if you've ever watched the Smurfs, you know you need context. And sometimes even on the show when you have context, you still think to yourself, Whoever wrote this was definitely smoking a lot of weed. I need to go smurf myself a smurf of smurf. Okay, all right, buddy. Let's, let's put it down. You need a detox break. Eat some chips or something and come back and try this again from Papa Smurf. Table is table makes no sense. Love is love makes no sense. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Just flip forward to 1 John chapter 4 with me. I want to make sure we're all starting from the same place. Verses 7 through 10, John says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that the world might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Apart from God, apart from God, no person can ever really understand, experience, or even express love because they don't know what it is. They are doing something and co-opting a word that they do not understand. They're like the, they're like the middle school kid who was at the retreat that I was preaching and the worship leader was leading worship And sometimes worship leaders do a thing where like they're moved by a moment and so they repeat the thing. And we did that today. And then sometimes worship leaders do a thing where they're moved by a moment and they're like, you all are gonna be moved by this moment or I'm gonna die up here playing this guitar. And that's what was happening in this particular instance. The worship leader was singing this song, I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you. And this middle school kid, I mean, and and everybody's like, we get it, man. We're going to, like, we're 15 minutes into this one line so we're gonna give you what you need. We'll raise our hands. We'll sing loud, like you want us to cry. Is there an offering plate? What do we gotta to do to get to the next song? And this kid that is standing beside me, and he was he was like me as a seventh grader, like chunked down, skinny little loud kid, and he is belting it out. I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you. I want to yearn for you. And I mean, he's got his hands raised. His face is like contorted. I'm. I'm year- yearning for you. I want to yearn for you. And as the worship leader is continuing, he's, I want to yearn for you. And then he stops and he goes, he looks at me and he goes, hey, what does yearn mean? I don't know what that word means. <laughs> We've been singing for 15 minutes. This dude has been belting it out with deep conviction and passion. And with deep conviction and passion, we can say, I love you. This is what love is. But if it's not rooted in the character of God, it's not love. If it's not born of an intimate understanding of God, it's not love. And if it's not what God does and what God wants done, then it's not love. To go any further down that road would take me into another sermon that some point we'll preach. Because God's word is clear about a lot of things. Be a friend. It's a gospel indicative, but it's imperative that we get it right. Before we jump into the text, this is all just preamble. This doesn't count as sermon. This is just me thinking out loud, right? Before we get into the text, I want to say one last thing. Um, Friendships begin when somebody reminds us of Jesus. That's when they start. When somebody invites us into something, when somebody accepts us, we feel alone. When somebody includes us, we feel distant. When someone actually sees us in a moment of weakness, frailty, and fear and puts their arms around us makes us feel safe and accepted. Jesus was present, he was humble, he was sacrificial, he was patient, he was mission oriented, long suffering and forgiving. Jesus, the friend of sinners. This was the critique of him. The friend of sinners. Romans 12:3 it says, Paul says for the for by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. If we can't live out Romans 12, 3, we will never get to experience Romans 12, 9 through 13. Prideful, self centered people know nothing of love and know even less about Jesus. So, into our passage. This passage is uh, structured like a megaphone. It starts with this single focused thing and then just continues expanding the idea from there. So, that megaphone shape, I want you to think about that megaphone shape as we go through because everything is kind of predicated, everything is kind of built on this first verse. Let love be without hypocrisy. Your translation might say, let love be sincere or let love be genuine. Detest evil. And cling to what is good. It's so disappointing to be a two faced person. I'd rather say, don't you just hate two faced people? But I'm a two faced person sometimes. And so I'd rather say it's so disappointing and disheartening when I am a two faced person. What must be true among us is love, it must be something that is not done for our own benefit. That's not what love is. But done and given freely for the benefit of someone else. The truth is that you're not gonna be best friends with everybody. You're just not, you don't have time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. That's what heaven is. Heaven is when we have all the time to enjoy all the people and to be eternally in God's presence. It's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be fun. I'm gonna be there. You're invited. You're welcome to come with me. It's gonna be great. I hope to see you there. We'll enjoy each other for all eternity. We'll enjoy God for all eternity. Until then, until then, you're not going to be best friends with everyone, but you can love everyone. You can't open up a door of friendship to everyone. I think a stinging criticism against the church today is just that it's filled with people who pretend to like you but actually don't. People, uh, like research shows us, that people will come to a church because of the music and the preaching. And they'll endure at that church for about three years because of the music and the preaching. I think that timeline is shrinking as people become more and more mobile and move around more and more. But they'll stay for quite a while because of the preaching and the music and the programs. But the only way that people endure at a church is through formed relationships, through friendships. I mean, I don't need to say a whole lot about this. Let love be sincere. Let it be genuine the people that are around you aren't stupid, and they know if you don't really like them. They know if you don't care for them. And, and can I tell you what is, I think, in our culture? This is not researched or anything like that. This is my own personal conviction. The, the single thing that prevents friendship more than anything else in our culture is this. This this little guy right here because I sit with you and you sit with me and while we're sitting there something happens and I go like this and then I'm doing this and if you watch people sitting in a group they're all doing this I'm not I'm not pointing fingers at you I got like however many pointed back at me so like if I'm finger guns three are at me one are on you and one I'm using to blame God like you're the one who invented cell phones you know you invented snakes in the garden. This is kind of on you a little bit, because I'm still I'm still being conformed. You know what I'm saying? I'm not perfect yet. So you get two, God gets two, and I get six. That's how it works in my own, you know, finger gun kind of a way. We'll talk more about that. In verse 10, it says, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another. Love is not a new command. Leviticus nineteen eighteen says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." It's not a new command. This is a very, very old command. Love is an extremely old command. What's new is the covenant that makes us a family. That Jesus died makes us brothers and sisters. It means we're supposed to look at each other like brothers and si- we're supposed to look at each other like brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. Those of us who are older in the congregation, you should want to be a part of this family because this family needs fathers and mothers, people who have walked with Jesus through seasons of life and have endured in walking with Jesus through seasons of life and have a desire to share with others in humility, the wisdom that has been gleaned by a lifetime of victory and failure through a lifetime of joy and pain, through a lifetime of faithfulness, long-suffering, doubt, struggle, success. We need spiritual fathers and mothers because those who are younger are just feeling around in the dark, doing the best that they can. We also need brothers and sisters, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, The death and resurrection of Jesus made us a family. You know the pre-existing commitment of shared DNA? No matter how weird you all are, I'm going to love you. That's like, that's family. You know what I'm saying? That's family. You go to Thanksgiving, you go to Christmas, you get together for a birthday, you hang out with these people. You look around and you're like, okay, am I the apple that fell from the tree, caught a root and rolled away? Am, am I the weirdo or are those guys the weirdos? Like like you love your brother. You're going to fight with your brother. You love your sister. You're going to fight with your sister. But you're going to love them. And if anybody else messes with them, then it's on like Donkey Kong. You know what I'm saying? We are going to throw down. It's about to get real in here because that's my brother. You were just punching him. I know. That's my right and privilege as a brother. Nobody else gets to do that. You got weird aunts and uncles? I got some weird aunts and uncles, man. My aunt is deeply committed to the idea of sending direct messages on Instagram as a means of persuasion politically. She is deeply committed to the idea that she can transform this world by sending you a cat that is sparkling, that is moving across the screen, and it says, God loves you. If you don't send this to 10 people, Your life is going to be ruined. Like, she's committed to the concept. You know what I'm saying? I got family that is weird. But you know what? I love them because they're mine. They're mine. Yeah, they're weird. I'm weird too. So are you. You Don't don't be be walking around with your nose up in the air. You're weird. You got some stuff that makes you weird. You got some stuff that makes you unique. You got stuff that makes you really hard to deal with, and so do I. The pre-existing condition of family is love. No matter what goes on, no matter how weird it gets, no matter how mad you get at somebody, yeah, I'm mad at them. If you get mad at your brother and his wife dies, I'm I'm still mad at him, but I'm going to go comfort him because that matters more than this feeling that I have. There's something that exists deeper than the feelings that I have. In a culture where everything is sexualized, we have an opportunity to shine. Everything is sexualized. Every touch, every glance. You just look someone in the eyes, smile at them, tell I, I think you're an amazing person. People don't know what to do with that. They don't know how to receive it. They don't know what it means. But our love for each other has to be pure. It has to be honest. Verse 11 says, Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. Serve the Lord. I, I wrote this. Mission is where friendship has the home field advantage. The home field advantage of friendship is mission. If you are lonely, if you're lonely, if you need friends, can I just like throw out one suggestion? Find someone who's doing something, and go do that thing with them. Or decide to do something and invite someone to do that thing with you. We have forgotten how to be friends, and we have forgotten how to make friends. You know how to do it when you're little, right? You see a kid by himself, by herself, and you're like, we're playing kickball. Do you want to play kickball with us? Yeah, and that kid goes home. How was school today, Raiden? It was good. This guy invited me to play kickball with him. We're friends now. We play kickball together. That's what we do. That's my kickball friend. When I, was, uh, when I finished eighth grade and moved to Cushing, Oklahoma, I moved from Dell City to Cushing. My parents love to tell this story. We were driving around Cushing, and, and I didn't know anybody. I'd never heard of Cushing. I didn't even know it existed, and we're moving there. Moving can be a scary thing. But the way that God wired me, I'm not scared of new things. Just I probably should be, but I just am not at all. And so I'm driving around Cushing with my parents. And every person that we saw, my parents were like, we're driving around. And every time you see somebody you'd in the car with the windows up, hello there, potential friend. Well, hello, potential friend. And yeah. those of you know me are like, yeah, that's for sure that sounds like you. Hello, potential friend. As they're like, you said it a hundred times as we're driving around. Like, hello, potential friend. Hello there, potential friend. I can't wait to be friends with you. It's going to be awesome. We'll be friends and we'll be friendly and it's going to be wonderful. And, and, uh, and it ended up that it was. But can I tell you, when I first got to Cushing, I was a fish out of water and I didn't have what I would call f- a friend, like a person, you know, like someone that was like, my guy, like my friend. How did the disciples become friends with Jesus? Jesus said, You're my friends. How did that happen? <laughs> Here's how it happened. Jesus is like, hey, cool boat. You guys want to leave it and come hang out with me? And they're like, yeah. So they threw their nets down and they went and hung out with him. They left their family. And they went and did something with Jesus. Doing something is how you build a friend. That's how you build a friendship, I should say. But doing something that's kingdom-oriented is how you build a great friendship. That's how the Davises and the Hollises became friends. And when Red Hill first started, we just started doing stuff together. And we would say, we're going to go do this thing together. When the splash pad opened, Red Hill was asked... To host the opening of the splash pad. We were like, yeah, we'll do it. Because that's just sort of like my personality. Yep, volunteer. Here we go. Let's do this. And so we said, we're going to do this. And it was our two families that showed up and did it. And it was awesome and exhausting. And that's sort of what friendship is. When Rusty moved to Cushing, it was for me an answer of prayer. Because I didn't really have a friend. I had friends, but I didn't really have a friend. And the way that Rusty and I became friends, was we had a new youth pastor move in and that new youth pastor moved in and we were like, hey, what if we tried to win all of our friends to Jesus? Like, what if we just went all in? We got to see a bunch of our friends come to know Jesus. Live passionately for Jesus and invite somebody else to join you. Or find somebody who's passionately following Jesus and follow him. Do you want to build a snowman? Do you have time for me? Is there space in your life for someone else? relationships are naturally going to form. Critically, we call them clicks because you just click with some people. Clicking with some people is not a problem. The problem is closing the loop and closing the fist on that relationship. hold it with an open hand and let other people join in the thing that is good. We live in this mentality of scarcity. There's only so much friendship to go around, but in the kingdom of God, we have abundance. There's more than enough. And by inviting others into the friendship that we enjoy, we don't make it less, it becomes more. Don't lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. Verse 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Rejoice, be patient, be persistent. I don't know what else to tell you. Some of you here today are like me, <clears throat> in that phase of life. For two and a half, three years, just saying, like, look at all these potential friends, and when is the one gonna come into my life? Guys, like, just don't, don't give up. And if you have a friend, and they are hoping about something, don't dump water on their parade. Like, don't, don't be like, don't be eor to your friend. If your friend is like, man, I really hope this is going to work out. Don't be like, it probably won't, you know. Like, man, that's, I'm, I'm pumped for you. I'm hoping that it's going to work out too. <laughs> be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. All right, verse 13 says, uh, share with the saints and their needs and pursue hospitality. Um, I think a really overlooked value in friendship is generosity. I have this principle in friendship. I don't like to keep score. So like, I don't like the concept of I owe you one. I'm like, no, 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 you don't owe, you don't owe me anything. The Bible in fact says, owe nothing to anyone except love. You don't owe me anything. We're not keeping score in this thing called friendship. If you start keeping this uh, score in the thing called friendship, you destroy the friendship and make that person instead an opponent, a competitor, must always level up above them All of a sudden, that person who used to be a friend now becomes a chore. They did this thing for me. I have to do this thing for them. Those kinds of relationships have a very short shelf life. Generosity. Generosity is a hallmark of friendship. If you look back at Jesus, just look back at Jesus and its abundance, right? It's uh, these people need something to eat. Great. Give them something to eat. We don't have anything. Well, does anybody have anything? Yeah, we have like basically a tuna fish sandwich. Okay, we can work with that. And then we gave everybody enough to eat. And was it just enough for everybody? Nope. It was enough for everybody and the kids and for the disciples and for Jesus. And then there's like basketfuls left over every time, these giant basketfuls of leftovers. So everybody got to have take-home too. So you don't have to throw it away there at the sermon. You got to take it home and throw it away at your own trash can, which is what my family does with leftovers. We're like, could you box that up? We, you, know, you guys have enough trash to deal with. We'll take it home and throw it away in our trash can. We're bad at leftovers. You know? We can't be good at everything. We're good at everything else. <laughs> We're not. In Jesus, we move from scarcity to abundance. We move from scarcity to abundance. What's in my hand is not all that I have. This life is not the only one that I'm going to live. This mercy is not the last mercy that will ever be given. Giving to you does not take from me. And I don't have to be afraid of losing anything, including my own life. I can be generous with all of it, knowing that my heavenly Father sees me, loves me, will provide for me, this is how you know you have a friend. You get sick or you experience a loss and they just show up. They're just there giving what they have. This, this is why people give food to people at funerals. And you end up like 47 casseroles. Why? Because I can't give you your loved one back. This is this is all I have. And I'm, and I'm giving it to you. I hope it helps. I hope it's a a reminder that you're not alone and that I don't really know what it's like, but I I know what it's like. Isn't that what it is to be a friend? To just say like, what's in my pocket can be in your pocket and what's in my hands can be in your hand. And as we're talking about all this, aren't we really talking about Jesus? Aren't we really talking about what Jesus has done for us? Aren't I just saying, when I'm saying be a friend, aren't I just saying that I should love you the way that Jesus loves me? I should give you what Jesus gives me. And Paul says, pursue hospitality. I, I like that. Pursue hospitality. Just keep trying to be hospitable. Keep trying to give more and more honor away. Orient your whole life around the love and the mission of God in that person's life. Pursue hospitality. I've been thinking a lot uh, privately about, uh, first, let me me offer a quick preamble because I feel like this little sense of conviction in my heart. One of the hard things about being a pastor's wife is sometimes you hear about things for the first time with everybody else Maybe the hardest thing is when you hear about things from someone else that your husband's thinking about, uh, but I've been thinking about this idea of Sabbath quite a bit. I've talked a little bit about it with Sarah, so it's not completely out of left field, but I've been like, just like, trying to figure out, like, how can I Sabbath? Because I can't, like, in the traditional sense of Sabbath, like, I'm technically working this morning, you know what I mean? But am I working? Because I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm not really exhausted by it. Most of the time, I'm not exhausted by the idea of preaching. I'm, I'm energized by it. For me, it's an interaction with the Holy Spirit personally. Like, I, I, even in this moment, I want to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. But I've been, like, interacting with this idea about Sabbath and trying to practice some things relationally that I think are hospitable. Like, I've turned all the notifications on my watch off that are related to, like, any kind of social media text messages, phone calls, my watch doesn't alert me about anything. So if I'm with you, like, because at first it was like, I won't look at my phone. I'll just look at my watch. And then what happened was instead of seeing text that I could actually read, I started doing this. Hold on. It's like five sentences. I got to scroll a lot to get all the sentences, you know, so I'm sitting here reading things off my watch instead of enjoying your presence. The idea of Sabbath that is like resonating in my mind is like I want to build a box and say Saturday night at dinner time, everybody puts their phone in the box. And anybody who wants to come over for dinner, anybody can come over for dinner. And I don't know what all we're going to eat, so you better bring something if you're coming. But if you come for dinner, you have to put your phone in the box. Well, what if an emergency happens? Just tell people where you are There's like a whole, like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years people existed without a digital leash on you to be able to find you in a moment of crisis. And by the way, if something terrible happens to someone else, somewhere else, the only thing you're going to be able to do about it is worry and start traveling there so you can worry with them, which is not inconsiderable, but also doesn't actually change the situation either but I've been thinking about this and thinking about pursuing hospitality, like moving towards honoring others more and more and giving them the only thing that I actually possess, which is myself, to be fully present and engaged, just enjoying all that they are and letting them endure all that I am. You know what I'm saying? Mark ten forty-five. Jesus said, excuse me, it says that for even the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I like that verse. Philippians 2, Paul told the church in Philippi that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus, the high and exalted one, Made himself the lowest of the low. I, uh, I read this book, actually, I listened to it, and I highly recommend it. I highly recommend that you read it and that you listen to it because the author himself narrates the audiobook. The book is Everything Sad Is Untrue, and the author is a guy named Daniel Nayiri. His real name is Josro, but uh, he says, Since you're a dummy and you can't pronounce Josro, you can call me Daniel. And uh, it tells the story of Daniel and his family and his mother who becomes, miraculously, in Iran, she becomes a follower of Jesus. And then tries to help the underground church in Iran, and a fatwa is put on her head by the Iranian government where they're going to murder her. And so miraculously, she and her two children are ushered out of Iran. They're refugees in Italy, and then they move from Italy to Edmond, Oklahoma. Talk about a downgrade, you know? I mean, like, oh, man, right? But it's the whole story of his experience, of how his family, his mother came to faith, how he came to faith, what it's like to be a refugee, and what it is to be Persian, And there's all this history woven in and all this culture, like Persian culture woven in. what do you think of when you think of Iran? I don't think of culture. I don't think of a richness of experience. And it doesn't sound to me, based on what I hear in the news, like the most hospitable place that has ever existed. But there is a word for hospitality, kind of. It's an experience of hospitality. In Iran, there's a word in Persian, it's tarof, to tarof is to do something specific. And basically what it is, it's a continual lowering of yourselves. It's reciprocated back and forth, lowering of yourselves to give the other person more and more and more honor. It's like ritualistic. It's this back and forth exchange. I was reading one separate article about tarof and it said, if you go to Iran and you take a cab somewhere and you say, how much do I owe you? The the driver might say, oh no, 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 please. You don't owe me anything. And then you get out leave because, okay, great. Awesome. See you later. And you leave. And he's disappointed because what he was trying to do was honor you. And you go, oh no, please. I want to give you more than I should give you. And he says, no, 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 really. It's my honor to get to drive you. No, I'm so honored by you driving me. And and Daniel Neri, he says, this can go on for 45 minutes, like for a long time. And some of you uh, are like fully Americanized type A personalities. Listen, Baby steps. You just gotta think baby steps towards pursuing hospitality, okay? You don't have to jump all the way into the deep end of the Pacific Ocean. Just baby, just progress towards being hospitable because some of you are like, this sounds insane. This sounds crazy. But what it is, is it's a reminder and a declaration. This is what Taroth is meant to be. This reminder and this declaration that says, there's nothing I value more than your friendship. Nothing is more important to me than you are. You are the treasure. Knowing you, enjoying you, and honoring you is the context in which everything else that we will do takes place. To me, it sounds like heaven. To me, it sounds like the way that God loves me and the way that I'm supposed to love God. To me, it sounds deep and rich. Tarof nothing's more important to me than you hospitality is not me showing you all that I have that's good hospitality is me thinking of you honoring you serving you giving you the things that I believe would be beneficial to you helpful to you a blessing to you an encouragement to you this is what it is to be a friend Verses 14 through 21, there's like a pivot. I think it could actually be a new paragraph to help us out a little bit because 14 through 21 really turn our attention from how we're to treat one another in the family of God to how we're to interact with the world around us. I'm gonna move a little faster through these because I don't wanna interrupt our GCs tonight. Negative charge. Those of you who don't know what that means, you're gonna have to listen to last week's sermon. <laughs> Don't miss. You might miss a good fart joke. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Can we cut to the end of the page real quick here? Because the verse that we all want to look at is the one that says, when you do all this stuff, you will heap fiery coals on their head. And we just gotta, I want to talk right now about that verse. Because there have been plenty of times when I'm like, you know what? That dude is driving me nuts. So you know what I'm going to do? I am biblically going to burn a hole into his brain cells. This is how I'm going to get my revenge. I'm going to love you for the purpose of ruining you. I don't know in those moments if I'm really understanding what love is. You know what I'm saying? Like, is that really what's going on? Um, Those of you with hair on your head, which is some of us and some of us not, If the hair upon your head were lit on fire, would you respond in any kind of a way? Like, most urgently, if a part of your body begins to burn, you are most urgently going to address the situation. We might think that this verse, like in our own common language, means killing them with kindness, right? Killing them with kindness. But I think a better representation of it is what Paul says earlier in Romans where he says it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. That the point of the coals being heaped on their head is not to increase their suffering, but to instigate and inspire their repentance. We bless them, not curse them, We endure indignity. We don't reciprocate it. Jesus said, someone makes you go a mile, go two miles. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other side as well. The purpose of that is not that you must endlessly endure injustices. That is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, that by acknowledging the injustice and blessing them, you are actually identifying the whole story of injustice. Bless. Don't curse. Verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. John Mark Comer has uh, started this thing called Practicing the Way and uh, they're releasing these uh, practices, like gospel practices that we will probably use, some of us. And the first one that they did was on Sabbath. The second one they're doing is on prayer. And it's all this video teaching and interactive uh, dialoguing. And there's podcasts podcast associated with it. And on the, this most recent podcast about prayer, um, they, were, they were talking about this exact uh, concept. Um, one of the guys is from, I think, Zambia? Somewhere in Southern Africa, he says part of the Bantu tribe, which is like all the sub-Saharan African peoples. It's 600 different ethnicities. He said, but the Bantu people have a word for this thing, and I can't pronounce the word. I can't remember it either, so like double negative, I guess, there. But he said, we have this word that describes a practice that we have that, that among the Bantu people, he said, like, if you and I were beefing, like if we had a problem with each other, we were angry with each other and something bad happened to you, I would come and I would comfort you because the, the grievance will wait but something has happened. And if you had the birth of a child, I would come and I would celebrate the birth of a child with you because the person matters more than the problem. And the world inverts that. The problem matters more than the person. So because of this problem, now you are canceled. You're completely done. You can never offer anything good for the rest of your existence because of this thing, because of this problem. But in Christ, we're able to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And by the way, this is couched in the midst of people that need vengeance. They want vengeance and are being cursed by others. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Enter into their feelings. Give honor to their experiences. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble and this is what I wrote down, chill out just a little bit. You don't have to be a pain in the butt all the time, all right, you just don't. Just chill out just a little bit. Just relax just a little bit. You don't have to be stuck up. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, associate with the humble. By the way, this little passage, like it should make you feel like this is written like another section of the Bible is written. This passage is written like wisdom literature. This is written like Proverbs. This is written in such a way that if you and I will just stop and actually think about the words that are being said, you don't really need me to be preaching. Because it's pretty plain and pretty obvious and pretty simple. And the issue is not clarity. The issue is compliance. Because God has been perfectly clear with us as to how we're supposed to love. We're just not particularly compliant. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Be the dumbest person in the room in your own estimation. Because what will that cause you to do? It will cause you to ask questions and learn from others who may, in fact, not be as far along as you are. But even those who are not as far along as you may have an insight or a perspective that only adds to the wisdom that you already possess. If you are the wisest and smartest person in the room, no one can offer you anything. You have no need of anyone, and you will find eventually that you only have yourself whom you don't like very much. You don't have to do that. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. Uh, Dom and I do discipleship together. We're helping each other learn how to follow Jesus just by talking about uh, our lives, what's happening, how do we understand it, what does Jesus have to say about it. And we talked this last week about the story of Shimei and David, and it's this great story in the Old Testament. I'll let you find it if you're so inclined. But uh, David's son Absalom steals the throne from David. David and his mighty men and those loyal to him are leaving the city, probably emotionally the lowest point that David's ever experienced, because he, he's already lost one child due to his sin. And now he's got another child who's rebelled against him and humiliated him publicly and stolen his throne. He's leaving this kingdom. And this guy is on the hillside throwing rocks and mud down on David and cursing him. And David's mighty men, who would just as soon kill you as look at you, are like, David, this guy's an idiot. Can we please go kill him? Like, we'll just, how about if we just go kill that guy? And David's like, nope. Because it might be from the Lord. And you go like, wow, that's amazing. And then at the end of David's life, he tells his son Solomon, who ends up taking the throne because David gets the throne back. If, look, if I just spoiled that for you. The Bible's been around thousands of years. And that's on you, okay? That's just on you. David gets the throne back. He hands it off to his son Solomon. And when he hands it off to his son Solomon, the last words that he shares with Solomon are about Shimei and the evil that Shimi did to him. But even Solomon doesn't come to Shimmy and go, you messed with my dad, now you have to die. He says, here's the boundary. As long as you stay in that boundary, you'll have mercy and you'll have peace. But if you leave that boundary, I'm going to kill you. Do you agree to those terms? And Shimmy's like, yeah, I agree to the terms. And then Shimmy leaves the boundary and he gets killed for it. You don't have to take care of it yourself, is what I'm saying. Do you actually believe that God exists? Like I'm Like genuinely, you don't have to answer out loud, but do you believe that God exists? Do you believe that he loves you? Do you believe that he knows what's going on in your life? Do you believe that he knows about the wrongs that have been done to you? Do you believe that he cares about justice and injustice? Do you believe that his kingdom actually is about righteousness and justice? Do you believe that the wicked will go unpunished? That nothing actually matters? Or do you believe that God is a God of love and a God of justice? That heaven is about eternal bliss, that hell exists, and it's about eternal torment? Do you believe all those things? Because if you believe all those things, you don't have to defend yourself and you don't have to exact your own revenge. And by the way, even when you do it, number one you don't feel better. And number two, you don't actually change the situation. You cement it in place. By taking vengeance, you prove that they were right about you. And by defending yourself, all you look like is a person who's guilty. Well, what am I supposed to do? My recommendation is just look at Jesus and try to do what Jesus did. My other recommendation is this, that in the full armor of God, the one thing that is not protected on me is my back. It's not protected in the full armor of God, which means I'm going to need some of you to have my back sometimes, and you're going to need me sometimes. Verse 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. That means it won't always work. It just doesn't always work because we're sinners. And even if you care about friendship as much as you care about anything in the whole world, it doesn't always work. Chances are good, I mean, room with this many people in it, some of you would say to me, you haven't done this for me. It doesn't always work. I want it to always work. I'm trying to move to a place where it always works. I'm trying to grow and get to a place where it always works. But it doesn't always work. So what are we supposed to do when it doesn't work? Like when it's broken, what do we do, what do, we do when it's broken? Here's the only thing I've got. Is you go to Jesus and you do whatever he tells you to do. And if you go to Jesus and you do whatever he tells you to do and it stays broken then you trust him to make it right someday. I got people in my life that are followers of Jesus that don't like me anymore. <laughs> they don't like me at all anymore. Like blocked on social media, don't wanna talk to me, don't wanna hear from me, don't wanna hear about me. And they're Christians and, and I don't know how to fix it, but here's what I do know is that later this morning when I take the Lord's Supper, I'll be reminded that someday I'll break bread with them again. Someday it's gonna be okay again. It won't always be like that. Someday it's going to be good, better than good. We don't have a word for what it's going to be like. It's going to be right again. Friendship endures only, only. Friendship endures only when you can forgive someone for not being God. Because that's what, that's what we want, Right? That's what you want from me and that's what I want from you. Every time, I want you to be Jesus. I want you to go like, I know your motives are pure and I know you're trying your hardest and I forgive you and I receive you back and I embrace you. I'll give you new life, not just a new chance. I'll fill you with my spirit. I'll welcome you. Like in Christianity, confession. Crawling out of our shame, leaving the bushes behind. That's not the white flag, that's the victory flag. But even sometimes with the victory flag, we, we just lose. In those moments, you just take comfort and know Jesus will set it right. Jesus will set it right. It will be right again. It's gonna be Okay in the end with that person who is also a follower of Jesus. Those who are not followers of Jesus, you make every effort to live peaceably with them. In other words, just do what you can and then don't beat yourself up for the things that you can't. Could you give yourself a break? Don't think so highly of yourself. It means... Not only are you supposed to forgive other people for not being God, you also have to forgive yourself for not being God. Just do what you can. Verses 19 and 20, friends. Sometimes I think the Apostle Paul sounds like Nick Volkening. Those of you guys who know Nick Volkening, friends. That's Nick Volkening, first church planter that we sent out. That is like his favorite word. Friends, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave a little bit of room for God's wrath. Here's what I think God is saying. You want to you get justice? Okay. But that means there's no room for me to get justice. And my conception of justice... And my ability to exact and and conduct vengeance, like I'm five, four and three quarters. I weigh like 160 pounds and I'm 46 years old. I don't even have hair anymore. Like, yeah, there's not a lot. I'm allergic to feathers. How much can I do? You know what I'm saying? How much vengeance can I exact from this person? How much wrath can I pour out in all my fiery greatness? God's like, why don't you let me, can you leave a little bit of room for me to operate? You don't have to do it all. Leave some space for me to work. Don't defend yourself. Don't attack back in response. Let God handle it. As you do that, as you give them something, as you bless them, as you pour out his love upon them, they don't have a framework to understand what you are doing. It will freak them out. And the more that you can consistently be a shining example of love and mercy and grace and kindness. It, listen, it's really hard to be extremely mean to someone who's being extremely kind. It's really hard to attack someone who takes responsibility and sincerely confesses, repents, and asks for forgiveness. It's just hard to stay mad at that person. It's hard to keep pouring out anger and punishment on that person. And the more that you do it, the more that you expose your own wickedness and their goodness. That's, that's what Jesus is telling us here. This, this is how we're supposed to live. He says, Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. And then the megaphone, the idea just keeps expanding and informing what we're supposed to do and leads to this. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Yelling at the darkness in anger or in fear has never made the darkness not darkness. You can go into a cave and be like, I hate the dark. I just stubbed my toe again. Everybody move all the stalagmites and stalactites. Can somebody clear this cave out, please? I hate this place. This is miserable. There's only pain everywhere. Somebody should have done something about this by now. Why haven't we elected the right person? If we elected the right person, then suddenly the cave would be a cave of wonders and not a cave of terrors. We would no longer fear the darkness but embrace the darkness you know like bane you know i was born in it (laughs) we were born in it you know what i'm saying we live in it martin luther king said darkness cannot drive out darkness and hate cannot drive out hate only light can drive out darkness and only love can drive out hate is there too much darkness in the world that's because there is not enough light in the world never once has someone been in a dark place Lit a light, no matter how small and insignificant the light. And the darkness was like, I don't think so, light, and just snuffed it out. It doesn't work like that. This, that's not how it works. If you light a light in the darkness, the light shines quite brightly, in fact. That's how it works. Every single molecule of existence was designed by God to communicate the same story Over and over and over and over and over again. Our lives, our lives are the testimony about who God is, and our love for each other is the testimony about God's love for us. And our interaction with people who hate us, who don't like us, who treat us poorly, is the testimony about how God treats sinners. How does God treat you whenever you're in rebellion to Him? Jesus said, the measure that you use will be used to measure you. This is why I forgive everybody. If you do something to me, you're like, you do something, I'm like, I forgive you. Because the measure used against, measure I use against you is the measure that God's gonna use against me. So I'm gonna forgive you and we're gonna work on it. Now listen, can I tell you something important? You have to do the work of forgiveness. There are very, very few grievances that are small and insignificant enough that someone says, will you forgive me? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Or you're like, yeah, absolutely. And then we don't ever think about it again. Much more common, much more important for us to deal with is the the ongoing struggle of forgiveness. Or sometimes moment by moment, day by day, we're, we're having to remind ourselves to do the work of forgiveness, to do the letting go of the pain. But hate doesn't drive out hate. Darkness doesn't drive out darkness. Only light and love can make that kind of an impact. I want to move into our time of response. It's such a strange thing and it's something that's difficult because I care so deeply about it that I always feel like the things that I'm just like, this is like a central part of my own identity. I always just like, I stand up in this moment. And I just go like, oh, Holy Spirit, you just like do something with it because I didn't do enough with it. But I just, I just genuinely believe that the world needs to see us operate as a family, loving each other as friends. We'll say about someone, I love them, but I don't like them. And then I want you to imagine your parents saying that to you. I love you, but I don't like you. Or I want you to consider God saying that to you. I love you, but I don't like you. And how devastating that is. Friendship isn't about loving every single piece of every single person. Like my best friend, Rusty, the first time I got in his truck, it was hot. And so I turned the air conditioner on and we we're just talking. So I just moved the air conditioner over because that's just like a normal human thing to do. Like I'm, I'm hot I'm gonna make it colder. He reached over and moved it exactly back where it was. And some of you are like, why are you sliding like this instead of like tapping something on a screen? Because it was one of these deals that you slid back and forth. There's blue to red, left to right. And you slide it to the left for the blue, which represented cold. I slide it over to the left. He moves it exactly where it was. And I was, like, le- and, like, and didn't look at me or acknowledge it at all. And then I was like, that was weird, whatever. I just slid it back over and we just keep talking. He doesn't, like, no change. Just moves it right back exactly where it was. And it took me a second to realize he had done it. And I realized it when I, I got hot again. And I was like, what's going on here? This is, like, this is weird, right? I mean, this is weird. This is a weird thing. So I move it over a third time. Now now I'm tuned in. You know what I mean? Now I'm like, okay, ADD aside, I'm watching this dial now. I want to see this thing move again. Make sure that I'm not losing my ever-loving mind and didn't ever actually move it. And... Rusty, who's my best friend, reaches up. This is one of the first interactions we ever had. He reaches up, he grabs the knob, the slider thing, and he looks at me and he goes, would you like me to change the temperature? And I was like, yes. He moved it over to the hot and then back over to the cold. And some of you guys are like, that is really, really controlling and super, super weird, and I don't know if I could be friends with someone like that. And to that, I would say, yep, yeah, 100%. Yeah, But if I hadn't endured that small moment, I would have missed every great moment in a lifetime of friendship with someone who stood by me when no one stood by me, someone who was present when I needed someone present, and someone who provided me the great gift and opportunity of loving him and being present for him. If you're waiting for a perfect person to come along and love you, his name is Jesus and he already died on the cross and you wrecked it and he still loves you and still wants to be present with you, everybody else is going to disappoint you. Everybody else is going to hurt you. Everybody else is going to irritate the bejeebers out of you. And if you haven't had your bejeebers irritated out of you, give it a moment, make a friend and you will. Or go to college and live with people that you thought were your friends. You know what I'm saying, college students and those of you who did that experience? You're like, yeah, we're friends, but we can't live together. <laughs> That's going to ruin the friendship. Stu- I mean, I'm saying it's okay that people have some annoying habits and tendencies. You know why it's okay? Because I already have a Jesus. I've already got a Jesus. Now I just, I just need someone else who will help me remember him, who I'll get to see him through and experience him through. The pathway to that is so simple. It's just I like the gift of friendship that you give to me is to say, I don't need you to be Jesus. I just need you to be Raiden. I don't need you to be someone else. I just need you to be You. And, and if you can sit still long enough and consider for just a moment, can't you feel something inside of you going like, I want to know what that feels like. I'm, I want to know what it feels like to be Adam and Eve, alone and afraid, and have, one, have someone say, you can come out. It's okay. You can come out. Just, just you just like you are you can come out just want to be with you this is a value for us cuz it's valuable but until it's taken off of the page and lived out in our hearts and worked through in the messiness of real relationships and real life it's meaningless and it's worthless But as we learn, as we learn how to receive that kind of love, then we learn how to give that kind of love. And as we do, I promise you, we get weird. We become difficult to understand. And those of us who get to see it up close get to say, like, I don't have a framework for that. And I don't have that in my life. What if we could become the kind of church, like this is like a, like a deeply rooted hope of mine. What if we could become the kind of church that instead of people saying like, that place is like just filled up with hypocrites and people who will judge you. What if we had a church that, that, that people would say, like in our community, I wish I had friends like that. I wish people liked me the way that they like each other and enjoy each other. I wish that someone really knew me and loved me Be a friend. Jesus is the ultimate example of friendship. I don't want to make this like hard pivot turn to like, if you aren't friends with Jesus, then Jesus will be your friend today because the Holy Spirit can communicate to you what you ought to do. But I do want to give you like just one challenge. Just one challenge. To sit down today at some point in whatever method of communication you choose, I personally recommend a handwritten letter because it's meaningful because nobody does that anymore. But a text or a call is fine too, a Facebook message or a snap or whatever gizmo wizardo you use to communicate with people, I don't know. Tell someone what their friendship has meant to you, what it means to you that you get to have them as a friend. And don't do it casually, think about it. Consider the friend that God has given to you. And for those of you who are in the room and you're saying, I don't really have that person, here's what I want you to do. I want you to do what I did. Take that time and spend it with the friend who sticks closer than a brother and tell him what you need. Ask him to provide it for you. He knows you, he loves you, and he loves giving you good things. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus laid down his life for you. He loved you. He demonstrated what love is. We're to love each other in the same way. As you take the Lord's Supper this morning, those of you who are followers of Jesus, it's on the table over there. As you take it, I just, I want to encourage you. Thank him for his love. Renew your commitment to love as he has loved. We're going to sing together. We're going to pray together. We're going to go together. Because that's what friends do. Let We pray for us. God, we acknowledge you are holy and we're dust. (laughs) You are in heaven and we're hurtling through a vast, expanding, infinite universe on a space rock. Tiny specks in the scope of creation and history. And yet, you are mindful of us. You're mindful of me. Like you're thinking about what it me, like what it means to be me. Your friendship is a gift that we treasure. And your friendship is a gift that we take for granted. We confess that we are victims of our own choices. And we are. The product of our own habits. And our souls are crying out for more than what we are giving them. We recognize a world filled with lonely people settling for an imitation of love. God you know there ain't nothing like the real thing baby there's nothing like you and the love that you have for us help us we get irritated we get angry we get resentful We become way too apologetic, allowing ourselves to be railroaded. We rob people of the gift of our own presence. But we're ready for more. We want to follow you into more. Lead us. When you're ready, you can take the Lord's Supper.
1: Just a moment, the band will come back up. We'll sing together.